Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. What role does doubt play in your life? Do you think of it as something to push aside and ignore, or do you pursue your doubts to get answers? In this episode, we examine the role of doubt for Christians, avoiding both extremes of refusing to engage with doubt as well as obsessing on it. Our goal here today is to face doubt honestly and ask God for help as we do the hard work of getting good answers. Here now is Offscript episode 29, Dealing with Doubt. Welcome. Today we are here talking about an important subject. We're talking about doubt and the role that doubt plays in our lives as Christians. And in the studio today, we have not only Rose Ryder, as usual, but subbing in, we have Mr. Sean Kelly as well. So uh, we're excited. This is actually his second off-script episode. Uh, what was the other one you did? It was on work. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. We can put a, a link to that in the show notes. Not too long ago, Rose had shared at a women's conference on the subject of doubt, and I thought it would be really great to see what she's teaching the women of the church. No, I'm just kidding. And <laughs> <laughs> that would be really great to hear a little bit about that, because this is a subject that is really looked at in one particular way within Christianity, and that is negatively. And when I looked up online verses about doubt, I came across a whole bunch that basically were saying, don't doubt, don't be double-minded, and you should just have faith and trust in God. When you live in a, uh, a monoculture, like say medieval Catholicism in Europe, and everyone just accepts a certain set of doctrines, and there aren't skeptics and atheists and other religions in the public space challenging you all the time, then, yeah, doubt is something that's not really, doesn't really play a big role in your lives. But in the 21st century, in the modern world, there are so many other options that doubt is a real part of our reality. And I'm not convinced personally that ignoring it or pretending it's not there is a very helpful strategy. So help us out, Rose. What do you, what do you think we should do? For those who don't know, which is probably most people, the topic at the women's event was faith. I like to look at things upside down and I like to look at things backwards. And, you know, maybe my first um, thought was to do, you know, a positive, I don't want to say puff piece, but a nice um, touchy feely thing on faith. But then I like to flip it upside down and I look at it backwards and like to think about some of the things that maybe most trouble you and some of the things that are the greatest challenges to your faith and also some of the things that are the greatest faith builders. And I very quickly came to doubt and I was thinking um, of the passage with the father in Mark 9. This man has had a son that the disciples were unable to heal. He had reason to doubt finally bringing his son to Jesus and you know he has questions and he he wants Jesus to be able to heal his son but the disciples have failed to heal his son so he brings his doubts to Jesus um, and he owns up to it and he says I believe help my unbelief and I loved that so much because that is all of us wrestling with our faith I believe every day and I don't believe every day I would say and I said that to the women I have t many moments of not believing and as you said Sean um, being out of a monoculture where we have so much pluralism 
system where we feel often like more of a minority often as Christianity feels like something of the past where we feel like we're coming into a, in a post-Christian society. That makes me question probably just Christianity not being so mainstream and so popular. That is probably the number one thing that makes me question because as a minority, I want to, to know that what I'm believing is valid um, and that we do have a reason for the hope that is in us. And I thought it was really important to address this. And I think I had never actually heard it addressed this way beforehand, but I had definitely been wrestling with doubt, you know, my whole life, um, as probably most of us have been. And a lot of the women told me they had never heard anything like my presentation and they had heard many things to the contrary, but I wanted to look at it from from a point of truth and from a point of being confident about our truth as opposed to indoctrination. Truth has nothing to fear, as you say very often on this podcast, and that's what I wanted to bring it back to. If God is true, he can be doubted and he can be questioned and he can be investigated and he will be gold every single time. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing about truth. I think of truth as like a very tough piece of metal. And let's say you have a metal bar and you're trying to figure out, is it aluminum or is it steel? Well, if you hit it with a hammer really hard and it's aluminum, it's going to get dented or it's just going to break. And if it's a piece of steel and you hit it really hard, your hand is going to hurt and mm -hmm. it's going to be fine. And that's the way I think of truth is that it can handle the fiercest strike because it really is true. And if it can't, then do we really want to keep holding to that? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like doubt can be an incredible servant of the church where it can, can lead us to greater understandings and, and help us rather than something to be feared. But at the same time, I recognize that there, there is this other side of doubt where the scripture calls us to trust, it calls us to faith, and there is an inappropriate side to doubt as well. So I, I think we definitely want to see both sides of this here while we're working our way through. Why don't you share that little story about indoctrination? Yes. Um, so I had an agnostic friend of mine come over a few weeks prior to my sharing at the women's conference. And at our church, we I'm involved in teaching the toddlers. And we had a schedule on my calendar of who teaches the toddlers which week and what the topic is supposed to be. And so my agnostic friend is coming over for dinner. And, you know, the way people do, it kind of like looks around when it's his first time over at your apartment. He's like looking at everything and people get fixated on the fridge. So he sees, <laughs> <laughs> he sees my magnets. He sees my pictures, my papers. And he says, oh, and he comes across the toddler teaching schedule. And he says, indoctrination of the little ones. And that was an awesome opportunity actually to connect with him and talk about indoctrination and how, yes, I do believe there are systems of religion and I do believe there's parts of Christianity where it kind of does turn into an indoctrination, sort of push your doubts and your questions aside and just believe what we have. Faith is such a good thing. Um, and I think that is easy to slip into, but I think we want to engage with our doubts. We want to pursue the truth. We want to be um, open. If we do have wrong theology and if we've been looking at God a wrong way, we want to have the humility um, and the integrity to be able to change our views, to align more closely with the truth. Mm -hmm. And that is what sets us apart from indoctrination. So I had that conversation with him and I said, you know, we want to be intelligent people and we don't want to be closed-minded. We want to be open to the truth. And that really is our number one allegiance is to the truth, Christianity being what we believe is true and is valid. But we are truth seekers and that will inform anything we choose to believe. Uh, I just looked up the word indoctrination and the definition I got back says the process of teaching a person or group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. 
you know, that's kind of funny, but I'm sure your agnostic friend learned the English language via indoctrination <laughs> and probably basic mathematical facts and all kinds of other information because that's what elementary schools do. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about children, too, is that it takes time to develop your ability to critically think, to handle ambiguity. That's part of human development. And so I don't have any problem at all with the concept of indoctrination, whether, whether it's talking about something from the Bible or something from just elementary education. However, if you are a teenager or an adult and you're still, like your ideas in your head are still completely untested, that's where you run into problems. And that's part of maturation is that, you know, especially those college years when you, when you leave the home or maybe you stay at home, but you go to, you go to college and you, and you really start testing your ideas up against other people's ideas that are sincere, decent people, but hey, my friend's a Muslim or hey, my friend's an atheist or, or whatever they might be. And, and that is really the moment where a lot of doubt does come into the picture. I don't think you can raise a child, like a young child, on doubt. I just don't think they can handle it yet. They don't have the mental framework to be able to process that kind of uncertainty. Uh, kids are incredibly dogmatic. <laughs> At least my <laughs> kids are, whether I like it or not. So uh, I think that's kind of a red herring, this whole, oh, you're indoctrinating the children. Everybody's indoctrinating the children. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. the question is, is the doctrine that they're indoctrinating them with legit, or is it fairy tales and superstitions? Mm-hmm. Well, and certainly we're in an environment where they totally will be thought critical thinking. And we, yes, we're teaching them the stories and we're not, again, raising them on doubt and challenging them to, to question it. But certainly later on, when they're older, when they are at the appropriate age, that will be addressed. A defense for the faith and what, you know, why do we believe what do we, what we believe? Well, their friends are going to do that. As soon, yeah. as, as soon as they get to junior high, they get to high school, you, you, your friends are going to be challenging your beliefs. Uh, especially like you said, in the kind of culture we live, we're much more of a minority. I mean, Christianity is a majority in America, at least as people self-identify, something like 70 to 80%. But in my high school, there were not very many people self-identifying as Christians or wearing it on their sleeve, so to speak. And the the few who were, were a little, they had like a screw loose. So it was just (laughs) like, you know, kind of a difficult thing to, to, you you definitely don't feel like you are in the majority and you got this you feel like it's a contested marketplace of ideas and if if the faith of christ and the apostles is true then we we have to bear the burden of proof and mm-hmm. i think that's fine because it is true and there and the the burden of proof can be borne so i don't really have a problem with it i think with children that's a different subject but with like teens and adults then yeah i think we do need to do the hard work mm-hmm. yeah i would say um especially when it comes to indoctrination and doubt, and this is more just viewing from my own personal going through childhood and then on through high school years and college years. And those who were just told things were ones that really didn't have a firm foundation. I mean, just as the parable with the the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built it upon the sand, when it comes down to it, you know, ones who really are just told what to believe throughout childhood and maybe they're told... Noah, and they're told uh, Daniel and David, and they're told normally a child version of the story as well. 
you know, they, they don't have a very good foundation of that belief and it crumbles and you can tell. But those who have uh, more of a rudimentary bringing up in the scripture, whether it be, you know, learning why do you have to live a certain way why, and, and you get into the lifestyle details of things, I think that's more of a, something you can hold on to and carries you on through maybe those high school years and, and things like that. It's not necessarily doctrination. It's more of a moral foundation that you're receiving. And then you back it up with why. But with that comes the learning two plus two before you learn the algebra. And, you know, if you just try and learn algebra, you're not going to be able to apply it very well because you have no understanding of the background behind it. So and I, I think the same thing with, with indoctrination. It's, it, it fails when you're just told what to believe. And it, it's strong when you have an understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Because there's a lifestyle. That's really what being a Christian is. It's a, it's a lifestyle as much as it's a belief system. Yeah, it's mm. both. I have this vivid memory. I was doing a... Um, some sort of an evangelism outing in the Poughkeepsie area. And I remember I was driving around with Amy Littler. She turned to me and asked me, Sean, why do we believe the Bible's true? And I was just like, I don't remember how old I was, like maybe 19, 18, 20, whatever it was. And I remember the force of the question hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, well, of course there are reasons why, but... (laughs) I don't know why I've never thought to ask myself that question in like, or like al- allow myself to ask that question, really. And I, I just kind of like made up an answer. I was just like, well, I'm sure there's some good reasons out there in archaeology, yada, yada, yada. And then I, I, I kind of like left that and I was like, wow, you know, I, I really don't have a good answer. And for me, the moment was I was at a community college doing uh, science a lot of science. I was doing engineering science program, and I, I remember just really feeling like I can't put this off anymore. Like I need to find out if my faith is can handle criticism, can fit with science, or I need to get rid of it because the pressure is is squeezing me more and more, and I need to do something. Mm-hmm. And that's really the period when I was probably eighteen, nineteen, where I really started digging into reading Christian books that talk about apologetics, look, reading these kinds of books and, and looking at the science and how the faith works together, to me was, it, it was really a lifesaver. And I was so helped to find the, the, the groundings for my faith and how it made sense apart from just what the Bible said. Mm-hmm. What else we got, Rose? So when we look at that, we often look at it as, you know, throwing acid on your faith as something that's going to be a detriment and as something that's going to be harmful. I thought it was important to present the idea that doubt can be a two-way opportunity. Yes, it can absolutely be an opportunity for the tempter to get in there and cause you to want to abandon your faith, to want to give up. If he has caused you to doubt in such a way that you are not seeking the answers and that you're not even, you don't even want to see the validity in your faith and in your Christianity, that can be a serious problem. But at the same time, doubt is an opportunity for you um, to wrestle with your faith and in so doing, strengthen it. I do believe that the question faith is a strengthened faith. If you've never questioned, I think it's kind of like never going to the gym. You might be a little sedentary in your faith and you might be, you might say, I never get winded. That's because you've never got up and ran up the stairs. 
I think the question faith is like something that you have worked out and it's where you've asked the questions and you've done hard things and your muscles have ached and you have felt sore and you have had the acid in those muscles. But in so doing, you strengthen your faith. When the questions arise, we need to not have a fear of asking the questions and going and doing the work. I think it's an opportunity to, to, number one, strengthen our faith, but number two, know God more. Through questioning um, and through seeking the answers, you come to know God in a deeper and fuller and more intimate way that I think is incredibly profitable. With being a Christian specifically, there are certain core elements that need to be pretty rock solid, and then you can still keep moving on. And I think some of this verbiage and usage of the word doubt permeates Christian talks way too much, just like the talk of I'm still a sinner permeates Christian mm. speech too much, I think. Because that's just not how uh, the early examples of, of Christians really t- seem to speak about themselves. And I think it's because if you're speaking that way, you're really at a level that you shouldn't be at. You're, you're where Paul is talking to them, and he's, you know, he's talking about how they're still... Yeah, you have 1 Corinthians 3.2, where Paul is referencing where he fed them with milk, uh, and he didn't start them off with solid food. And I think that's fine. You know, that makes perfect sense. You're infantile in your faith. You're going to not be ready for for the, the big stuff yet. But there is a point where you've got to step up, step it up and be at that level because also later he also talks about, you know, you're still focusing on yourselves because you're imperfect and you're not stepping, you know, you haven't risen to that level instead of being able to then transfer that over to you helping other people. In Paul's sense, you're stealing his time and his attention when he could be spending on other people and not just him, but they should be able to focus on other people as well. And I think when people have a lot of doubt that's constantly circulating into their faith, that's something that needs to be overcome. You know, maybe they need to step back and deal with it. There are certain core things that I don't think should be constantly doubted. I would love to have your level of conviction, but I still need milk every day. Not every day, but I still will have moments of doubting God's existence. Um, I'm not super experiential. I'm not super touchy-feely. So sometimes I don't feel God as much as I would like. The long-distance relationship will always be a struggle for me. But I think the fact that I do need milk still sometimes, way more often than I would like to admit, doesn't mean I can't also have steak. I think there are going to be people who are going to have both. But I've also learned not to be super afraid of it. Like I know the adversary is still trying to get me, you know, on little baby steps and things like that. Um, And I may be in a way still more open to that than I should be, um, because I do want to question and I do want to seek truth. But I think I can still walk on. And I think even if it's something I have to go back and settle again and again, I want to fight that battle. And I also want to, I want to be eating the solid food. So, and I, I feel like for people out there, like if you are, if you feel like you've been walking with God a long time, but still have questions about his existence, like, I mean, I do the, I do the legwork quite often. Um, go back and there's, there's things out there um, to bolster your, to bolster your faith. There's research and you can talk to people and people who have experienced it as well. I don't think you should be spending your time in the gutter by any means. And like, you shouldn't be just like embracing your doubt and diving in all the time. But I think you do need to do an appropriate amount. And um, I don't think I'm to your level of conviction. I think I do question a lot. Um, But when that happens, you know, do what you have to do, but don't linger in doubt. I would totally agree with that. You can be asking for it if you spend too much time and give it an overemphasis. For me, as far as God's existence goes, typically I don't need to convince myself of it. It's just something that is my normal. Like, yes, there's a God. And I'm convinced of that. Just like I don't need to convince myself of my wife's existence. I'm not with her right now, but I know she exists. <laughs> you know, I don't have mm-hmm. to like convince myself of it. 
There are times of doubt. There are times where uh, my faith gets weakened because of some tragedy that strikes or some other reason. And in those times, I fall back on the, the, the sort of like hard intellectual reasons. Mm-hmm. Also, my own testimony, you know, which is an experiential case for God's existence. I think in those times of, of doubt or those times of difficulty, having hard-nosed, you know, maybe quote-unquote scientific reasons for God's existence is very, for me personally, has been very helpful. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was looking up the word doubt. I know it's just like the dictionary podcast episode today. <laughs> and it says to be uncertain about something. Uh, and, and I feel like there is a sense, like you were saying before, Sean, about within Christianity, where it's kind of popular to say, oh, I doubt this or I doubt that. And that, I think, rolls into the idea of humility, where we are supposed to be humble. We're not supposed to say we know everything and that we are not willing to consider any options where we could possibly be wrong. But then on the other side of that, you don't want to like go to an extreme where you're not sure about anything. So you never, you never act. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there is definitely a balance with the, with this kind of uncertainty. It's like, this is the best understanding I have about salvation or about how I'm supposed to live right now. So I'm going to live in light of that, but I'm going to be open to hear what other people have to say, especially other people who are coming from a biblical point of view, because that's where my stake's in the ground. So I want to hear what they have to say, too, because I I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Do I think I'm wrong right now? No. But neither does anybody else. So I need to be open and humble, but not paralyzed in doubt. So I think there's definitely a balance there. From a scriptural point of view, when it comes to this whole idea of like walking with God and, and faith and blind faith, I love what John Lennox says about that where he talks about how there's a big difference between faith and blind faith. And he says, faith is something that you have good reasons to believe in. And he uses the example of a bank who is going to lend out a bunch of money to somebody. And he's like, well, show me your pay stubs for the last year. Show me your credit card statements. You know, and they, and they, want, they want evidence. They want reasons to believe that you will pay back the money they're going to loan you. However, in the end, it's still a step of faith for them to actually give you that money on the strength of your signature. Mm-hmm. And that's not blind faith. There's no bank. Well, hopefully the bank's not operating a blind faith. I think we had some of that in 2008. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, it's not supposed to be blind faith. It's supposed to be faith based on reason. And that's what we see, I, I think, from a biblical point of view. Jesus says, don't believe it because I said it. Believe it because of my deeds. Mm-hmm. Look at what I'm doing. If I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe the, the Father sent me. Mm-hmm. But if I am, then you should believe. And even at the end of the Gospel of John, John writes, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so even the Gospel of John itself is itself evidence persuasive evidence mm-hmm. to believe that Jesus is actually the Messiah, the Son mm-hmm. of God. So the, I, don't, I don't think the Bible's like shunning evidence, saying, oh, you have to take it on blind faith. Uh, it's, it's saying, look, there are good reasons. Here they are. We were there. We saw it. Some of us didn't even believe in it. Like you have, of course, Doubting Thomas at the end of John, right? Mm-hmm. But then he did believe it once mm-hmm. he was confronted with the evidence. And so I feel like Christianity has this really cool legacy of dealing with doubt in a constructive way rather than saying, oh, no, 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 no doubt, no doubt allowed. 
there is this idea of persuasion mm-hmm. through evidence. I uh, f- spoke about three main doubters of the Bible, and of course Thomas is the most famous one, but in the Old Testament you also have Gideon. Well, hold on, what would you say about Thomas? Oh, well, I just, I, I kind of spoke about all three at once. Oh, okay. So we have, we have Gideon, these are people who asked evidence from God. We have Gideon in the Old Testament. God wanted him to tear down an altar to a false god. Gideon was basically, you know, if he followed God's um, command, taking his life into his hands, and before he did that, asked for two confirmations um, from God, and God delivered every single time um, and gave him the confidence that he needed to act out in faith and then also act out as a leader. Hezekiah was the king of Judah who was very sick and asked for a sign um, of his recovery, and God did it. Thomas um, ended up being one of the founders of the church. And of course, you know, we know him as Doubting Thomas, but in the end he was believing Thomas. And honestly, all the other disciples had seen the resurrected Christ right. in the flesh. I mean, he missed out. The other people didn't rap. The other people didn't believe, and they didn't believe the women. He gets right. such a bad rap. Like, they didn't believe either. But Thomas was the one who, of course, was, you know, out at the corner store or whatever when, <laughs> when Jesus appeared. He... Christ gave him exactly the same evidence that he had given the other disciples. And probably the other disciples would have said the same thing, unless I put my hands in his wounds, I will not believe. All of these people, Gideon, Hezekiah, and Thomas, all had leadership positions. Gideon was sort of a military leader, Hezekiah was the king, and Thomas was one of the founders of the church. It was incredibly important for these pivotal people to believe and believe firmly. And every time they they asked evidence from God, he gave them what they wanted, and he did so in, in a loving and kind manner, but he showed them himself, and he showed them that he was reliable, and that that he was true and that he would be true to them in whatever pursuits they would have in the future. And that would have a trickle down effect to so many other people. So when you, especially if you believe God is asking great things of you, God's track record um, is that he will display himself to you, is that he will prove himself to you in a kind and loving way so that you can then step out intelligently in faith. So what I hear you saying is that when people did ask for confirmation, when they did have doubt in their own heart, God did not rebuke them. He did not zap them, incinerating them instantly for doubting him. He didn't take personal offense. He just provided the evidence they needed, Mm -hmm. and then they were solid. And they were all respectful people, too. They weren't, like, throwing it in God's face or anything, and they all took action, um, you know, when God showed himself to them. So they were were people who loved God, but when they had questions and when they weren't 100%, God gave them what they needed. Uh, I also wanted to address in my teaching at the Women's Conference what to do uh, when others are walking through seasons of doubt and then what to do when you find it in yourself. Because we all have, and um, probably we all will in some manner or another in the future. I shared a story about Skyping with my friend um, a while ago, and I forget what it was that had caused her, but she was basically questioning everything about her faith. And she had walked with the Lord for many years, but she was questioning the existence of God, the validity of scripture, every all of her experience in her own life, depression and loss of friendship had led her to this point. And she had mentioned it to um, many other people. And But when she mentioned it to me, I was no stranger to not that level of doubt, um, because I've never fallen into like a deep season of it, but I have flickers of it in my life every day. Um, and as someone who is very used to dealing with it, and I was someone who was not afraid of it, and I think she had shared that with many other friends, and I, she said I was the first one who didn't panic um, because I was oh. accustomed to it, and I'm, frankly, accustomed to owning up to it in my own life. And we just had a conversation about it, and I said, you know, this is um, a part of faith. Um, it is an opportunity for you to strengthen your faith, but when that happens, you have to do the work. God is happy to give you faith, but you have to ask for it. 
don't just sit there wondering, wondering, wondering without going out and do the work. So I said, this is natural. This happens to everyone and you shouldn't freak out. But it is the opportunity to go get going because the adversary is going to be working to tear you down. In the meantime, you have to take the initiative and own your faith and strengthen your faith in that. So I had a list of four things um, to do when others doubt. And the first one is don't panic. And frankly, that may be the first thing that a lot of us do. Right. If someone's questioning everything, you're like, oh my gosh, oh no. And then the num- number two is to love them constructively. Don't shame them. Don't make them feel bad about themselves. Know that they are valuable to you, that they are valuable to God. What they're going through is totally normal. And number three is share your story. If you've been through what they've been through or anything similar, open up to them um, and encourage them for you know the reason that the hope that is in you. Tell them what you have, what you've wondered in the past, and then your journey um, to believing what you believe now. And then give them resources. There are basically two kinds of doubt that we experience and we have sometimes it's purely one sometimes it's purely another but they often go together we can experience intellectual doubt which is you know questioning the pure existence of god um the goodness of god something a little bit more um philosophical in your mind then the other kind is emotional where you go from an intellectual questioning of you know the existence of god and the problem of evil to experiencing a serious loss in your life if you lose a loved one or um, if anything in your world comes crashing down you will experience emotional doubt when something really bad happens to you how could god have let this happen to you so it's no longer in a vacuum but it's in a very real and tangible and often painful part of your life So number four on my list of what to do when others doubt is to give them resources. And depending on what type of doubt it is, whether that's intellectual or emotional, it could be anything from a textbook to um, referring them to a good pastor or Christian counselor. But recognize the need, recognize the source of that need. And we have so many things where we are today in America. We have so many resources to strengthen people, no matter what kind of doubt or mix of doubt they are experiencing. Don't leave them stranded. Lead them them to hope. Can you recommend any specific website or book or anything that's helped you? It's been like so many different things with apologetics over the years that have helped me. It's been so many hear so many debates and hearing people speak. Um and any any chance for any sort of teaching about apologetics has always been inspirational to me um and very helpful. And also can be just good food for your brain as well, not just your spirit. I also enjoy reading um, the articles they have on relevant.com. I read a great article on doubt there in preparation for this. It's very good things about how to be serious with your walk and how to be serious with the faith in your life and following God in a real and relevant way. But it's also at a very basic level where everyone can read it and everyone can benefit from it. You want to add in any other resources, Sean? Uh, I always liked uh, the Unbelievable podcasts. I felt uh, they have years worth of good apologetic whether it be just debate or discussion that and just youtubing various debates uh, once you find some apologists that you like seeing what they've discussed in the past another thing i do like to listen to a lot is just in general podcasts which some of the better ones out there tend to be produced by npr affiliates which means they're left-leaning and therefore they throw out a lot that is counter-Christian specifically, but what that actually ends up doing is you just end up being exposed enough to the other side's opinions that you realize the legs they stand on aren't very strong. Mm. And that doesn't add anything to mine, but it doesn't give me, it gives me enough exposure to the other side that I don't uh, feel that they have anything worth jumping right. ship so for. So you're saying you're not cloistering yourself away and limiting exposure to other point of view points of view, which exposes you to the potential of getting uh, critical arguments, but also 
kind of makes it so that you're not afraid of the other side because you know them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just like you could go into the details, you know, this argument's not there as much, but, you know, human DNA being 95% similar to uh, primates' DNA, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, until you find out that that's 95% of, you know, different strains of DNA. It's not all, you still have the dead junk DNA that they found out in years recently. That's that, assuming that junk DNA is junk. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and you find out it's not as similar. So you could jump into the real hardcore science behind it. But if you at least know that, you know, some of these guys on the, the whether it be atheist side of things that are putting their all their faith in science, they don't have that strong of an understanding of what science is either. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they've probably never been exposed to Christian scientists out there because oftentimes that group has been kept quiet and not put mm-hmm. in the mainstream and therefore you don't realize there's there's arguments for them. I would say for me, just a, one quick little book that I would recommend is Building Belief by Chad Meister. It's just a great little book. I use it for my apologetics class, which I've had on this podcast in the past as well. Uh, it's a great little resource because it handles a lot of the different subjects that come up, and it does a lot of biblical apologetics as well. Um, There's so many quality apologists today. Just to mention a, a couple, um, William Lane Craig, absolutely top-notch for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Craig Blomberg's got a great, a lot of great uh, biblical apologetics. Tim Keller does a lot of good stuff with culture, engaging the culture, and like reasons for God's existence. If you just type in uh, defending the faith or the word apologetics into the internet, uh, you're going to find websites on both sides. You're going to find the atheist websites, you're going to find the Christian websites. That, and and it's, it's just a really cool age we live in. Like Rose, you said it a minute ago, like the, the stuff is out there. I really appreciated what you said earlier in your four steps. I mean, other than don't panic. I think it's helpful <laughs> helpful not to panic or shame, but uh, or like get down on yourself and be like, I'm such a bad believer. You know, none, none of these other people struggle. It's just me. No, it's not mm-hmm. just you. Okay. Everybody struggles with doubt from time to time. But what you said was do the work. Mm-hmm. And that is so often the part that is lacking is we, we encounter doubt and maybe we feel bad or feel funny or we keep it a secret or we tell people whatever, but like we don't actually do the work. And that's what we need to do is buy the books, watch the YouTube videos, listen to the debates or whatever it needs to be to find the solid evidence or ways of thinking about the subject so that we do come out the other side and we're not just uh, limping through life, hoping that no one ever discovers that we have this looming issue Mm -hmm. that we've kept a secret. I think your faith can atrophy, too. If you leave it alone, it can eat away at you. And there is one other thing. Um, it's actually a phrase I heard recently, which is the pessimistic meta-induction theory, which is simply that <laughs> theories are always changing. So you've got some new scientific element that, you know, theory that just came out. You know, you believe this about what's causing people to be obese this year. Next year, it's going to be something else. So you're going to do nothing about it because mm. who knows? And, you know, and they were actually saying, well, you can't live that way because that's what the science is saying in the moment. You still should try and live healthily. It was talking about food specifically. But I, I do think that actually is a reasonable, you know, if the science is always changing, why would you put your faith in something that literally is always different 
a decade down the road. So that is, I think, something that you should not stake your faith in. But at the same time, that's what's put against Christians as why Christians are anti-science, which is not the case. I mean, if, if, you, ha- if you have a Christian background, you're going to say there is a reason and a way things have happened. That's why right. Newton looked into gravity, because he figured God would have had a law in place to do it. So Christianity is not hindered by scientific reason or doubt. The doubt is not necessarily, it's not that you doubt um, the current element. It can be that, but it can propel you into looking into things because you know that there must be something. Mm -hmm. Circling back to the humility part, I think that, that that's also something that Christians have very wrong, and that can also play into a lot of this, which is the saying that, you know, I've, I've mastered all things except humility, because once I say I've mastered it, mm-hmm. I've already lost it, which is not necessarily true, because you have Peter who's telling the Christians, you must be humble. Well, if you're going to say that you must be humble, then you're going to claim that you are humble, <laughs> and that you're going to tell other people they must be humble. So you can claim it and still have it. And that's where I think humility is just seen as viewing yourself as nothingness Mm -hmm. and having no self-worth, which is totally wrong because God views us as having self-worth, which is why he sacrificed his son for us. So and that lack of self-worth is where you allow doubt and you allow um, an acceptance of, well, I'm a sinner, you know, I'm a doubt. And I think those things can permeate to an unhealthy level. And I agree that, you know, I'm not someone who's ever really struggled with God's existence. That's not something I've ever doubted. I've looked into why that would be the case more from the Newton perspective that, okay, I know he must exist. So what are the other arguments as to why he wouldn't? Yeah, you know? That's the old Latin fr- phrase, uh, fides quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. That's mm-hmm. the motto of uh, Augustine and... Anselm of Canterbury, you know, so this that's that's a valid historic Christian position. I already have faith, and now that faith of mine is seeking understanding how God did create the world or how God did set up the laws of nature, even though it might sound different that or it might sound out of place today. This this is a perfectly legitimate position that Christians have taken all throughout the centuries. The difference today is that our faith is so hotly contested, mm-hmm. especially in public space. And so in such a society as ours, a pluralistic society, we do need to learn the reasons for our faith, why it's valid, why it makes sense, why it holds up, why there's ancient wisdom that still works today mm-hmm. better than the alternatives. And uh, look, if it's true, it's going to handle it. And it's going to be fine. You're going to come out the other side stronger, not weaker. Uh, And that's the thing I love about doubt. Okay, really quickly. So my list of um, things to do in you doubt, and we talked about most of this already, already, is first of all, face it. Acknowledge that it happens. Don't let it just atrophy your faith away. Number two is pray through it. And that's largely based on the father um, who comes to Jesus and immediately says, I believe, help my unbelief. If you feel like you have to go fix your own doubt on your own, like that is, that's not going to be a good situation. If you have doubt, bring it to God. God will reveal himself to you. God will show you where to look. God will show you how to seek him. Praying should be like at the very beginning of facing doubt, not something that you do afterwards. Number three is share your struggles with trusted believers who can share their stories with you and share resources with you um, and help you along your journey. And number four is pursue answers and pursue them relentlessly. God wants to be found by you. God wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants you to experience him and learn to see him in new ways. 
uh, just um, a few quotes here that I had shared at the um, event. So on relevant.com, I was reading that article about doubt, and I really appreciated this take on asking these questions. This is from Melissa Collier-Gepford, who said, God is big enough to stand up to our questions, and he's loving enough to stay with us through them. You can ask God these questions, and yet as, her, as, as our Father, he is also patient enough to, to bear with us as we seek to, to understand him more fully. What I ended on was 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. This is talking about trials and that the fact that we are going to face trials and trials will come. But in the meantime, to cultivate our faith, Peter writes, um, Now you greatly rejoice that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity uh, and the honor to cultivate our faith. When we have holes in our faith and when we have doubt, we have the opportunity and really the responsibility to go out and deal with those things in as intentional and as passionate a way as possible. Seeking to know God better can be a form of worship. So as we have that responsibility to cultivate our faith, I say we should take it seriously that the genuineness of our faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The way you talk about doubt here, Rose, is that it's like mold, and it festers and grows in the darkness, in the, in the damp areas of our lives that are held out from any exposure to the outside, right? Mm-hmm. And that when we have doubt, if we clamp down and just let it fester, that's when it bubbles into this whole opportunity for the adversary to really do wreak havoc in our mm-hmm. lives. Oh, totally. But what I hear you saying is that doubt could be a good thing because when we have it, if it drives us to God and to seeking to understand God better, then it will be an opportunity to worship God because we're seeking God. It is a way to strengthen our faith. Mm-hmm. It is a way to connect with other believers who maybe already have the answers to the questions that we're now just starting to struggle with. Mm-hmm. and. If we can become stronger in this area, now we have a testimony and we can help others as well. Mm-hmm. So, look, you know, you really are subverting doubt here with this angle because you're saying, well, don't look at doubt as this thing to run away from. Look at it, look at it as this thing to bring you closer to God, mm-hmm. you know, almost like using it its own weight against it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for listening this week. If you want to engage with the topic or a previous one, Feel free to go online to restitutio.org or the Facebook page. Um, Also, feel free to leave a comment. Thank you so much, guys. We hope we've encouraged you. And if you have areas of doubt um, in your life, we hope that you will engage um, and that you will know God better as a result. Today, I'm going to say goodbye in Croatian. Dovigenia. Thanks for listening today. I don't know if you have been listening to Restitutio for a while or not, but I did post an entire apologetics class on Restitutio. So if you want to access that, you could just go to restitutio.org and click on podcasts and then classes, or you can just scroll through your phone or tablet to previous episodes. The apologetics class begins with episode number 50, and I have a link to that in the show notes, as well as a bunch of articles on doubt from relevant.com and a link to Unbelievable, the podcast with Justin Brierley, which is a very good podcast to hear both sides of a whole range of issues related to Christianity. 
Also, check out William Lane Craig's apologetics website, reasonablefaith.org, and I have a couple of other links to resources there as well. So check out the show notes if you want to dig deeper today. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.